Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. These programs are based on the ministry of Witness Lee and his 21-year-long crowning work, The Life Study of the Bible. We'll include excerpts from his spoken ministry, which focuses on the enjoyment of Christ as the divine life as revealed in the Bible. We hope that through these studies, you'll be brought into a deeper enjoyment of the scriptures and of our dear and precious Lord Jesus. You can contact us by sending email to radio at lsm.org or reach us toll-free, 888-LIFE-STUDY. Now, let's join today's program. Come, let us reason together. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, declares on behalf of God, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. How beautifully these Old Testament words point us to our dear Lord Jesus and his all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. This is a well-known verse in Isaiah, but the context and the whole scene unveiled here is not so well-known. Stay with us today as we explore once again Jehovah God in his loving and righteous dealings with his people. We continue today our new life study in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and with us is Francis Ball. Francis? Surely there are some mysterious things in this book of prophecy and poetry, but sprinkled throughout are verses that I think most of our listeners will recognize. There truly is a marvelous revelation of Christ in this book, isn't there? Yes, I certainly agree, Chris. This book is full of revelation of Christ in a prophetic way and even in a way of poetry. It really is one of the most outstanding books of the Old Testament presenting Christ to us. Francis, we're going to touch on many points in our program today, but they all are leading us to two key and mysterious items in Isaiah. We begin to see that God is bringing a long list of complaints against both the nations and his people Israel. Francis, when God is dealing with his people, whether it's the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or with us, the New Testament believers, whenever he begins to detail and enumerate or enlighten all of our sins and failures, what is he trying to accomplish? Well, this is a a very difficult question to come up with just a a stock answer. Uh, This book in Isaiah is marvelous, as we said, and uh, however, I'm a little doubtful concerning how many Christians have seen and have been willing to apply what you refer to as Jehovah's loving and righteous dealings with his people. Now, we like to know that his dealing with us is his loving way, but we have to realize that God is righteous. God is not only love, but God is righteous. So when he deals with his people, he does it righteously. And uh, for us to get these kind of dealings may not seem so pleasant and seem so able to bear so much, but Nevertheless, his dealings do have a purpose, and he is trying to accomplish something. His people in the Old Testament, as has been pointed out in these uh, verses in Isaiah, these early verses, have shown so much degradation, so much rebellion, so much even idolatry and turning away from the God who loves them, who had chosen them for himself that you wonder, after he lists all these things about their sins and their failures and their rebellion, 
What is he trying to accomplish? To put it very briefly, Chris, I believe mainly these dealings he is trying to gain their love, to cause them to love him, to cause them to turn back to him, to cause them to recognize that they cannot carry out God's purpose for them, and they are weak, they are sinful, they are all the things that God has pointed out. But he has done it in a loving way, like a father over his children, and he's done it in a righteous way, so that he is God. He must be righteous, and what he does must be in a righteous way. Francis, that was a, a very good answer to what was a difficult question. Um, it seems as we're reading the pages of the Old Testament many times and we get into these kind of negative and judgment-sounding portions, it's easy to get bogged down. But if we have this perspective that this is the loving God gaining back his children that have turned away, it, it, it does give us a way to extract the riches and really to be ultimately encouraged even in these kinds of passages. Yes, and we also have to realize that this kind of dealing by God is to display that he is righteous. God is righteous. Thank the Lord for his love, but we just worship him that he is righteous. Francis, we have uh, several short portions today of witnessly sharing. Let's get to the first one right now. After God exposed his people in their real state, God came in to deal with them, to chastise them. This dealing should be considered as a kind of governmental dealing. Yes, God deals with his people in love. Still, God needs a kind of dealing with his people. His people are not gentles. God doesn't need to judge them, but God still needs to deal with them. God is not a God without regulating principles, without controlling principles. God does have a kind of a government. So now, after God's exposing, God came in to deal with God's governmental dealing. Enough, no doubt, but in the governmental way. God dealing today to you is not with a negative motive. He's dealing with us, his beloved children, always with a positive motive. In a good sense, he's not punishing us. Quite often, I heard some did say, oh, I cannot bear God's punishment. This is too serious. I cannot bear it. But I must tell you, as long as we are a child of God, God doesn't punish us. You say, no. Well, this is just argument about wordings, uh, terminology. You say that's punishment. I say that's love. Francis, we heard that there is a difference in God's chastisement of his people and his judgment on the nations or the unbelievers. And this is a very touching and valuable point. Let me ask you uh, to review What is the difference in how God deals with us and how he deals with unbelievers? Well, God deals with us, the believers in Christ, as sons. He first justified us to make us righteous in Christ. And after this, 
He continues to deal with us so that we will be sanctified. That is, we will be made holy. As we are his sons by life, we've partaken of his life and his nature. Now he deals with us, the believers, as sons of God. And in this way, he's dealing with us as a loving father. And sometimes, you know, when we go through uh, life with our children or we even went through life under our father, we realize that many of the things that he did that seemed harsh to us at the time, actually we thank him for now and we love him for it. This is God's desire, that we would love him and also that we would submit to his dealings so we could be partakers of his nature and be a holy people. He even said, be holy as I am holy. This means that we have to be partakers of his very nature. So he deals with us, even points out our failures, shortcomings, sins, all of these things that we may confess, we may turn from them, and we may turn back to him and love him. But on the other hand, his judgment on the unbelievers is altogether according to his righteous standard and leads to their condemnation. Why? Because they would not repent. They would not turn. They continue in their unbelief. And unbelief is the greatest insult to God. But because they will not believe, they are not only judged, but they're in that judgment they are condemned. Francis, uh, we saw on Friday that the word chastisement has as its motive God's love. And as you pointed out, his judgment on the unbelievers has as his motive the preservation of his righteousness. Yes, that's right. It's marvelous that we are in the love category, even though at times what we experience may have a kind of feel or a characteristic of judgment. It really is this chastisement flowing out of his love to draw us back to himself. That is marvelously true, and we are under that kind of dealing, or we would not be sons. We would be illegitimate. Francis, let's rejoin Witness Lee with more of our life study today. To go away from God and to serve another one. Beside God, this apostasy. The word apostasy means you just leave God, give God up, and you change God. You give Him up, and you go to another God, which is not God. This is apostasy. Because of Israel's apostasy, God has chastised them. This is quite serious. At this point in his message, Witness Lee begins to enumerate a number of points related to the result of this apostasy. We want to go ahead and jump directly to one of the more significant of these points. Taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of support, that means food, water, all kinds of support, and taking away from them all the leaders, no leaders such as the judge, the prophet, and the elder, leaving them, no rulers. I mean, he takes away your father. He takes away your mother. Even he takes away your elder brother and sister. No one can rule. No one can exercise any ruling. And it is quite strange here that Isaiah linked the lure with the food supply. These two things are just linked together. Today the same. Ruling produces feeding, 
and feeding issues in ruling. Where fighting is in the church, there is a shortage of food and shortage of rule. No food, no ruler, no ruler, no food. Which comes first, I don't know. But anyhow, when there is proper feeding in the church life, everything will be in order. Ruling is there. Francis chapter 3 in Isaiah opens with God removing the leaders or the rulers from Judah in his dealing with them. And these rulers are connected to the food supply or to the feeding of the people. Uh, This is a common linkage, isn't it, between ruling and feeding, even in the New Testament? Yes, that is an interesting observation, too, that uh, ruling and supplying really go together. When Joseph was raised up as the ruler in Egypt, He was also the supplier. And for the Lord Jesus to be on this earth, his very presence was a ruling, but also a supplying. For example, when the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000, he commanded them to sit down in companies of 50. That means he was ruling them. And when he ruled them, he supplied them. Now, if you carry this on, you see, even in the church life today, If we have a proper eldership, a proper ruling, a proper uh, leading, that means the people are being fed properly. And if they're fed properly, they willingly come under this kind of ruling. And the whole situation becomes very peaceful and very enjoyable. When there's fighting in the church, you know that there's not the proper ruling and there's not the proper feeding. May we have the real ruling that we might have the real feeding in all of our church life. Well, Francis, as we um, kind of toggle back and forth between these items that we're seeing in these early chapters, Witness Lee has pointed out that they're all included in God's loving exhortation for his people. And this exhortation is both positive and at times negative, as we've seen. And we've been focusing more, it seems, on some of the negative aspects. But from chapter 1, verse 18, we see one of the most positive aspects, and that is of the Lord's forgiveness. I'd like to read this verse and then ask you to comment on it. And again, this is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Jehovah. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Let us reason together, Francis. When you consider this verse in the light of the context where he's just been dealing with them so much about their failures, their wandering away, their rebellion, and all the things that he's laid out in these verses. And then suddenly now he says, come now, let us reason together. Concerning what? Concerning your sins. (laughs) And uh, when he does this, that, that changes the whole tone. This is not only a verse that applied to the people at that time, but that's an invitation the Lord Jesus is giving today. Come now. You've been convicted of your sin. You know you're wayward. You know you're way off. You know you're out on your own. And you've been uh, neglecting the Word of God. You've been neglecting the Spirit that's speaking within you. And you've been just turning your own way. And you feel destitute. You feel wiped out. But suddenly he says, come now. I like that. Come now. Let us reason together. And let us reason about your sins. Your sins are red like crimson. They're scarlet. Scarlet and red like crimson. That's a very dark picture 
of what our sins have done to us. And this is true of Israel, too. When he's talking to them, this is what he's offering. Come now, and let us reason together, and your sins will be washed white as snow and be made as white as wool. Oh, this is marvelous. God's offer to us, no matter what our condition, that if we will come to him, and if we'll come now, and if we will open up our reasoning process and say, Lord, how can you do this? This shows that it's really looking forward to bringing in Christ in a prophetic way for our sacrifice for sin and the one who can wash away our sin and make us white as snow. Marvelous. That is a marvelous verse, whether we're New Testament-oriented, Old Testament-oriented, who could ask for a more encouraging and loving verse? Francis, when we had our first life study in Isaiah, it was pointed out by Witness Lee and Ron Kangas reiterated that if we try to understand this book item by item, verse by verse, we can very easily get lost and bogged down. But the key is to see some of the mysterious and key points that unlock this book. We're going to see a couple of these key elements in this coming portion. Let's rejoin Witness Lee. Now you have to see more secrets, more mysterious points. And these secrets, these mysterious points are very crucial. What are these two points? Number one, the ushering in of Christ as the God-man. Number two, the issuing in the restoration of the nation of Israel. Christ was ushered in and in this ushering in, there will be a kind of coming out, will be a kind of issue. It issues in the restoration of the nation of Israel. Number one, the ushering in of Christ. Number two, the issuing of the restoration. I hope that tonight you all could see this. Now, all these two things, the ushering in of Christ and the issuing of the restoration come from God's righteous judgment on the nations. The more God judged the world, the nations, the more Christ would be ushered in. The more Christ will be ushered in, the more restoration will issue out then that is the kingdom. That is the millennium. And millennium will consummate in the ultimate age of God's economy. That is the new heaven, new earth. Francis, we began today by seeing that all of God's dealing with his people in Isaiah and subsequently his dealing with us is with a couple of specific goals in view. Witness Lee refers to these two points as two secrets or mysteries in understanding Isaiah. Say something about these two, if you would. First, the ushering in of Christ, and secondly, the restoration of Israel. You know, when we read this and we see that Israel had turned so far away from God, and God's coming in as Jehovah to deal with his people, Israel, and to bring them into a restored relationship with him, all of these things are pointed out, and the more that's pointed out in the failures, the more we see 
the need for the ushering in of Christ. And the ushering in of Christ here, related to Israel, I believe, is really talking about his second coming. Of course, we have prophecies concerning his first coming, but also we have the ushering in of Christ that's necessary for the restoration of Israel. Israel will not be restored during this present age, because at this time, everyone is the same in this age of grace. Jew or Gentile, they must come by the way of Christ as their Savior and get another life. But in the coming age, God will restore the kingdom of Israel, and this it requires the ushering in of Christ as the coming king, and as such, he will restore Israel. So these two things go together. They are a secret. They're not that easy to understand as they're depicted here in Isaiah, but when you take the Bible as a whole, you realize that God's intention is for Christ to come back and set up his kingdom and restore Israel, his wife, as she's called, that is, Israel is called in the Old Testament. Francis, we're going to see this theme uh, reappear many times in the book of Isaiah. In this coming section, we're going to hear Witness Lee speak about chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the shoot of Jehovah will be beauty and glory and the fruit of the earth, excellence and splendor to those of Israel who have escaped. Let's rejoin Witness Lee. Shoot of Jehovah denotes his deity, and fruit of the earth denotes his humanity. And Isaiah, in chapter 4, says this, This shoot of Jehovah will be the beauty and glory of God's people in the restoration. Shoot of Jehovah will be the beauty and glory and the fruit of the earth will be the excellency and splendor. Very meaningful. This means when the time of restoration comes, Christ as the shoot of Jehovah will be their beauty and glory at that time in his divinity. And meantime, he will be also as the fruit of the earth, the very excellency and splendor on his human side. In his divinity, he will be the beauty and glory. In his humanity, he will be the excellence and the splendor. On the one hand, he will be the shoot of Jehovah. On the other hand, he will be the fruit of the earth, this God-man. Francis, these two terms, the shoot of Jehovah and the fruit of the earth, are very striking, and Witness Lee points out that they clearly point us to the God-man, Christ. How do we see him unveiled in these two beautiful expressions? Well, these are wonderful expressions, and of course, in this prophetic writing, you have figures of speech that we have to see what they really refer to. And when you see the shoot of Jehovah, that means here's something coming out of Jehovah. So that must be the divinity of Christ, because this clearly refers to Christ in a prophetic way. Then if you go on and say the fruit of the earth, this must be the humanity of Christ. So here you have a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ as the God-man. 
the shoot of Jehovah is his divinity, and the fruit of the earth referring to his humanity. Francis, we have one more portion from Witness Lee. We're going to see another pair of terms described that really point us to Christ. Here again is Witness Lee. A canopy referring to the God-man Christ who will overshadow the glory over the entire region among them. There will be a kind of glory that covers the entire Zion. Above this glory, Christ, the God-man, will be a canopy. This is Christ. In what book you can see that Christ is a canopy. Then a shelter, referring to the God-man Christ as a shade from the heat and as a refuge and a cover from storm and rain. And now Christ is a full protection. In other words, our defense is Christ. Amen. Christ is our personal defense, is our national defense also. No heat will damage us, no storm, no rain will touch us. Francis, as we mentioned, a second pair of terms appear in chapter 4, the canopy and the shelter or tabernacle. And once again, we're pointed to both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ in these expressions. Help us with these two terms. Yes, I think these refer both, again, to uh, the humanity and the divinity of Christ. When you talk about a canopy, that means uh, there's a protection or there is a covering of his divine glory over his interests on the earth. So this, this canopy really refers to his divinity. And then a tabernacle. This tabernacle is really referring to uh, Christ as a shade in the daytime from the heat and also a refuge from a storm and the rain. Well, who is such a one? That's Christ. Actually, in John 1.14, with a proper translation of that verse, you see, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, Christ himself is that tabernacle. And eventually, that becomes God's dwelling place in eternity when you get to the book of Revelation. This is a marvelous terminology in the prophecy of Isaiah. Francis, this life study message, as have been the ones preceding it, have been included in volume number one of the life study of Isaiah. And this is our three-volume set that uh, covers the book really comprehensively, uh, far more so than we're able to do in these 30-minute uh, radio programs. But each of these three volumes contains uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 messages. If you're interested, our toll-free number is 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 543-3788. Today, for Francis Ball, I'm Chris Wilde, and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Whether you're hearing this program via radio, online or as a podcast. You'll find hundreds of audio studies just like this one by visiting our website, lsmradio.com. We also hope you'll email us with your questions or comments, radio at lsm.org, or call us toll-free, 
888 study That's 888-543-3788. Thanks for listening.